Acts the 28th chapter. Let's look at verse number 16. Acts the 28th chapter, verse number 16. Here's what it says. It says, Now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guards, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, whom when they had examined me, they wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when compelled uh, to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you, to see you and to speak with you because of the hope of Israel am I bound with this chain. And then they said to him, we've neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who've came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, we know that is spoken against everywhere. And of course, he's speaking about Christianity there. Uh, so when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until the evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. When they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul said, to, said one word, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through the Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, go to this people and say, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house, and he received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. That was a long text, but let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and I pray that as we look at this last portion in the book of Acts, that you'd help us tie all this together, speak to our hearts, give us an ear to hear exactly what you have to say for us and to us tonight. Lord, speak through my vocal cords, hide me behind the cross, and help me to say everything that you want me to say, leaving nothing out. Jesus, we thank you for it. In your name we pray, amen. Well, tonight from Acts the 28th chapter, I want to entitle this message tonight, Final Destination. Final destination. The reason why I have entitled this Final Destination is because Paul's entire call in ministry was pointing to this moment that he was called by God to go to Rome to stand before Caesar. And, of course, we have been reading ever since Acts chapter 9 at Paul's conversion how God called him and, and set him apart, made him an apostle, filled him with the Holy Spirit, gave him a, a directive and a ministry. We have seen every single little zigzag that Paul has gone through, whether it's been prison, whether it's been false accusation, whether it's been misunderstanding, um, whether, it, whether or not it was the disciples and those that were supposed to be helping him didn't receive him. Um, all of these different things have been up to this point led up to this divine moment, which is Paul actually going to Rome. 
And so, as we actually look at this, I think that as we look at the Scripture, okay? Now, when I speak of the Scripture, I speak of the, the, what the scholars call the canon of Scripture, which is the 66 books of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. I think when you look between these pages and you take the entirety of Scripture together, I believe that each of us, even if we can't see it for ourselves, even if we're still struggling to find out what that is on an individualistic level, I think all of us can walk away with the understanding that God creates people for a purpose. He creates them for a plan. Um, I'm reminded tonight of Jeremiah whenever God called him. And he said, Jeremiah, I've called you and I've ordained you even from your mother's womb to be a prophet from the nations. We see John, God's hand was on John, Jesus' cousin. Um, from uh, birth, he was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. We see Jesus had an assignment from the very beginning because he was the Lamb of God slain from the foundations of the earth. So what we see is that God has this plan for us and the reason why this is significant tonight is because Paul is literally standing in this moment. Now, it must be amazing to get to a place in your life where you finally realize this must be it. That epiphany moment where you realize, I was made for this. I was born for this. I begin to look through the scripture and find some instances about this in other places. And Scripture is filled with different examples of people who have come and met their moment. One of them is a lady mentioned in the Jews' history in the Old Testament by the name of Esther. And uh, Esther was called by God to, to help save the people. And, and um, in Exodus, or I'm sorry, in Esther, rather, chapter number 4, uh, specifically in verse 14, Mordecai had challenged Esther. Now, we've, we've quoted this verse wrong, by the way. I've heard people say, well, Esther, it says that she was born for a such a time as this. That's not what it says. Mordecai asked her when she was trying to decide if this is really what she wanted to step into and do. He said, listen, if you, help, uh, if, if you don't help your people, uh, they're going to be helped some other way, and your family, they're going to die. But what if you were born into the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther's response was, let's pray three days, let's get this thing. Esther found out she was made for this moment. Now, so how surreal is that, that this whole book is centered around God using a woman to help the children of Israel. Now, not only do we have Esther, but Jesus, our hero of all heroes, said this in Mark's gospel, the 8th chapter, verse number 31. Here's what Jesus said. It says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then Jesus, here he is hanging on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And prior to Jesus going to the cross, Peter tried to rebuke that off of him and say, suffer it not to be so, Lord. And, and, and Jesus pretty much told Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you're talking crazy. You suffered the things of men and not the things of God. Because Jesus knew I was made for this moment. 
The cross was his purpose. And so when all of us find ourselves in those moments, it's amazing. But I believe Paul found himself in this moment. Now last week we ended in Acts 27th chapter. And we, we looked at how God used Paul and, and even helped him and preserved him and kept him. We looked at the divine providence of God. God sees us in the middle of our trouble and can you imagine Paul's getting ready to go to Rome, and all of a sudden that ship is, is the wind and the waves are, are beating up against it. Uh, remember last week, one of the things we said was, um, just because you're in the will of God doesn't mean you won't have any problems. Um, in fact, the will of God sometimes is evident uh, by problems, amen, because the enemy doesn't fight us sometimes if we're uh, already going the wrong direction. But, uh, so they're, they're throwing the loads off of the ship. They've let down their anchors. And, and Paul ends up washing up to shore to a little island called Malta. And the Bible says that in the beginning of Acts chapter 28, just giving you some history until we get to our, our main portion tonight, that they get to this place and they take the wood and they build themselves a fire. And they're cold, they're shivering, they're shaking. I don't know if you can imagine being in the sea for that long. The Bible's very plain that 14 days there was no dark, there was no light. It was darkness for 14 days. The sun did not shine, the moon didn't give light, the stars didn't cast. It was straight 14 days until that, that thing broke. And you imagine the coldness of night, um, you know, hyperthermic, shivering, trying to make it. And here they are floating up onto a piece of what used to be a ship. Then they're gathering their things, and they are lighting a fire. And it, can you imagine just the sigh of relief? <sighs> finally made it. <laughs> I finally made it. Whew, you can kind of relax a little bit, right? Wrong. <laughs> because as soon as they assembled themselves... And they started stoking the fire. The scripture says that a, a viper came out of the fire and latched itself onto Paul. I had a choice tonight because I really wanted to finish this, uh, this uh, series. I, I, I had a choice. I could have preached on that text. But I've preached on that so many times through the years on shake the snake and lessons from a snake shaker and different kinds of messages that I've brought from that. You know, when the fire heats up, the enemy always comes out. Lots of different good nuggets of revelation from there. But I, I want to just give you the background and skip over that and go to the meaty portion tonight. But what we see is that Paul shakes it off, and he should have died because it was one of the most venomous snakes in those days. And they look at him and say, he must be a god. And God used this miracle, history goes on to tell us, um, to start a big platform for Paul to really share the faith, and then he makes his way in our text tonight. Verse number 16, after they warmed up and got on their way again, the Bible says, and when we came to Rome, now here we are, folks. Here we are. This is Paul's moment. This is what he's living for. He's been passed the judicial system. He's gone from the Sanhedrin. He's gone from the high priest, and now he's appealed to Caesar. And because he was a Roman, they, a partial Roman, they actually gave him that leeway, sent him on a ship, and sent him his way. And now here he is standing before Caesar and his house. For two years, the scripture says, Paul stayed in Rome. Now, before we get 
too far into this. Some of you who are really good Bible students, you might be saying, well, Pastor, why did you call this message Final Destination? Because if you're a good Bible student, you understand that Paul actually left Rome after these two years for a short stint and spread the gospel all around the Mediterranean coast. And so this wasn't his final destination, was it? Or was it? Because history records that Paul... Now these are people outside the early, the early church fathers and whatnot because here's, here's what they actually say. This is directly recorded in church history that Paul was executed in Rome at about 67 A.D. So according to these ancient sources like Clement, uh, Dionysius, Iesibus, and Tertullian, Paul was executed by beheading, a death that was personally befitting to a Roman citizen. Uh, ancient records also record that Nero would have had a close uh, knowing and working of Paul because obviously Paul was a fire starter and he was well known amongst the people. And so uh, the order of the day was Paul's head cut off and so Paul was executed and this was his final destination. It actually is pretty surreal because about, I think it was three years ago, we had a, a, a day and a half layover stop in Rome on the way to Kenya and actually got to walk the old city of Rome and actually go to the Mamertine prison, which was the prison that, that everybody believes was the actual prison that both Paul and Peter spent their final moments in. It wasn't a lavish prison, but rather an old cistern underground, dark, dank, without windows, without lights, terrible, terrible place. Some Theologians and some historians say Paul likely died inside of the prison. Others say he was taken out to the public square. But what we do know for a fact is Paul lost his head right here. Now for some of us, we may not think that's a great way to end your ministry. But let me just tell you, you won't find it in the best-selling book at the Christian bookstore. It's not ranked up there high on Amazon but do you know that 11 of the 12 apostles died a martyr's death? Only one escaped by old age and died. I want you to notice that just like the Savior died, the apostles died giving their lives, which by the way, this is not an apologetics class, but one of the greatest bedrock testimonies of the surety of the Scripture. Now you got to understand that we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have manuscripts, we have archaeological evidence. So people that say the Bible has no historical validity, they're absolutely insane. They just don't want to look at the evidence. But the truth is, is that aside from that, one of the greatest testimonies were that these 12 men, even though 11 of them died a martyr's death and one of them escaped, they were all willing to die on the testimony that Jesus had arose from the dead and they personally were eyewitnesses to his resurrection. Paul may not have saw him in the flesh, but he saw him in the spirit. Now I want you to think about that. Paul gets to the end of his life, and I don't want to skip ahead because this is so liberating to me. When you know your purpose, when you know that you're in the will of God and you know that you've done what God called you to do, there is such a peace in the will of God. So tonight, before we jump into that too much, I want to just take an overview tonight. 
We'll take an overview. If you're taking notes, if you're following along with our notes, uh, write this down. First thing, number one, I want to look at the scope of Paul's ministry. It was broad. Paul had a broad scope of ministry. I'm not going to recap all of this, but Acts chapter 9, verse 20 and forward tells us that Paul preached the gospel to the Jews in the synagogues. So he had went to his own people and he preached a very controversial message. It's what got him hated by the masses. Paul, Paul didn't preach a flowery message. He didn't. Paul, Paul didn't preach a, a very flowery thing. And Paul was the one who preached grace and he preached um, uh, in Christ and, and he preached all of these wonderful revelations that we have in the epistles of Paul. But Paul's message, though, even though it was a, a New Testament message, it wasn't a greasy grace, mamby-pamby, um, keep doing whatever you're doing. No, Paul went right into the Jewish synagogue and told them that their way was wrong and that they needed to follow the Messiah. I mean, that was Paul's introduction onto the scene. And can you imagine going from murderer to minister? I mean, just like that. Paul's right in the middle of it. Then he goes to the Greeks, where all the philosophers are. Acts chapter 9, the later part of that chapter, he talks about going to those Greeks. In Acts the 13th chapter, he goes to the Jews and the Gentiles in Antioch and uh, preaches to them about the unknown God. Um, in Acts 16, he goes to Lydia in Philippi. Uh, in Acts 16, he later goes on to the uh, Philippian jailer and his family after Paul cast a spirit of divination out of a young girl and now finds himself um, a, a target, if you will, of the, uh, the woman's master. And so now he gets in jail, and rather than to throw a pity party about being in jail, he, he just determines to make it a captive audience moment. And they sing and praise, the presence of God comes in, and people get saved and baptized right there in the prison. Then Acts 17 tells us that Paul goes to the Greeks in Athens, and he preaches to them. And if you remember what I said about the Greeks in Athens and all the different gods that they had there, the one theologian said that there were more gods in Athens than there were men, um, just the different realms of idolatry there. Then he goes on in Acts 24, and he goes to Felix, the governor. Paul's getting uh, platforms with influential people. Um, then we see that uh, he goes to King Agrippa. Then we see that there's some sailors on a ship that Paul testifies to, that the angel of the Lord says, we're going to make it, we're not going to die, there's going to be no loss of life, only this ship. And then in Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, we look on and look back at the text we're reading tonight where Paul was able to minister to those in Caesar's house. Here's what I want you to know tonight. Paul, his ministry scope was extremely broad, but what we see was a man on a mission. He was a man on a mission. His, his mission was to share the message that changed his life. Because here's a man who had scales fall from his eyes. And now he had fallen in love with Jesus who had changed his life. And now he has given his life in exchange for what he had. It's amazing. Amazing story of redemption. Here's the second thing. 
The second thing that I wanted to share with you tonight, aside from the scope of Paul's ministry, but number two, I wanted to show you the scheme of Paul's ministry. Now, I said scheme, and I say that word lightly because people say, well, everybody always, there's always a gimmick. There's always a something. There's always some kind of scheme to it. But Paul didn't have a scheme. Paul's scheme of ministry was the gospel. Now, Paul made a statement later in one of his writings. He said, I become all things to all men that by all means I might save some. So he said, when I was with the Jews, I was like the Jews. And it doesn't mean he compromised. It doesn't mean that he, you know, sinned with them or anything like that. But, you know, when he was with the Jews, you know, he, he observed their customs. I mean, it wasn't sinful to do so. Uh, we have examples of that. Um, he tried to meet people where they were. But you've got to understand that Paul didn't have a scheme. He didn't have a bait and switch ministry. And I think so many times today, I'm going to get myself in trouble, but what new is there? Amen. Uh, so many people have bait and switch ministry, right? When I was a youth pastor, they used to do it all the time. Some of, some of the youth ministries in town, they say, well, you know, uh, we're going to uh, we're gonna get the biggest blow-ups we can find, the biggest pizza parties we can find. We're going to have a snow cone stand. We're going to let these kids have all this fun. And they're going to be like, whoo, it's so fun to come to church. And then we're going to hit them with Jesus. And guess what? Most of them didn't come back. We could count them. Hey, we had 50 kids last night. Woo-hoo, praise the Lord. Is there anything wrong with blow-ups? No. Is there anything wrong with hot dog parties? No, obviously not. But what you use to catch people is what you have to use to keep people. You better hear what I said. I think all of us can look back and wonder where some people are that maybe used to be in our lives at one point or another that are probably some victim to some of these things. Now, we have to understand Paul didn't run in and try to do something, and then hit him and run. He was, for, he was from, the, from the foremost honest person the moment that he stepped in on the scene. And I got to love that about Paul. He, there was no bait and switch. His message was the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what's so bad about the good news? Why don't you write that down? That's a pretty interesting statement. What's so bad about the good news? Well, the gospel, the word gospel, it means good news. The word evangelist, we talk about evangelist, right? The word evangelist, that, that word, it literally means gospeler. One who tells the good news. And so what's so bad about the good news? Why did these people hate Paul for giving them the good news? Well, because Paul was giving them the good news, right? What that meant was what they were giving was wrong. Because these people were saying, you need to follow the law, you need to be circumcised, you need to do this, you need to do that. It was all of these rules and regulations and all of these things. And Jesus had already given Paul the message of grace. And here Paul comes and he says, you don't have to do all that. Jesus died for your sin. He fulfilled the law. And that enraged the people. It enraged the people. I am almost convinced that if people aren't mad at you in 2020, you're not sharing the good news. 
Seriously. Seriously. And I don't mean, listen, you don't have, I'm not talking about being a jerk. I'm not talking about being rude or anything like that. But what I'm talking about is the gospel is counterculture. It's like salmon. They swim upstream to lay their eggs. Everything about us goes against the grain of the culture. All right? Listen, the Bible says, be holy as I am holy. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch the unclean thing. But when you tell people Jesus wants to set you free from the unclean thing, all of a sudden it's, well, you think you're better than us. And you, all of this kind of stuff. But no, listen, folks, the gospel is counterculture. But then again, Jesus did say, broad is the way. And many there that go in, but narrow is the way that leads to everlasting life, and few there be that find it. Now, it's not hard. To follow Jesus means to trust him and not yourself. I don't know if you've noticed lately, but he's a lot more reliable than I am and you are. He helps us to live right. He helps us to live holy. We, it's, it's his mercy. It's his grace. But when you, when you begin to tell people that you need a Savior, it can cause people to be real upset with you. Troubling trend uh, that kind of happened in the age of the megachurch and no problem at all with big churches. In fact, you know, um, a big church doesn't mean you're spiritual, and a small church doesn't mean you're not. Um, you can't really just measure those things like that, although um, I do believe uh, a church should always be trying to grow and reach people, but at the same time, you're letting people go to fulfill their assignments and callings, and so, you know, you may, you may gain 10 and lose 10. So, you know, growth in the kingdom doesn't look like you know, a, a pie chart per se all the time. But what we, what we need to understand is that the gospel, the message that was entrusted to Paul and to us was to repent, to turn ourselves from our ways and to trust in Christ. Now, that, the trend that I mentioned in the megachurch model was people not giving altar calls anymore. Not making time for people to make a committal to Christ. We can fuss at people if we want to, but every Sunday morning I watch people bolt from the door before we even say amen. Got quiet, didn't it? Hard to complain about what you're not willing to fix. Amen? But the truth is, is that to preach the gospel and to give good truth to people. How to have a better life. Listen, I, I'm going to tell you something. This Bible is so great that I could preach from the book of Proverbs some of the greatest self-help messages that you will have ever heard, and I could do it without mentioning repentance or the name of Jesus. I can give you an outline from Proverbs on how to win friends. I can give you an outline from Proverbs, how to manage your money, how to run from debt, how not to co-sign your bills, and all of that is Bible. But if I leave out the part 
about following Jesus and dying to yourself and picking up the cross and following him. Oh, but pastor, that's so offensive. Hell is offensive. People don't get a second chance when they stand at the judgment seat of Christ. We've got to realize is that when people stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I don't want my hands to be bloody. And that's why Paul was so fanatical about his whole life. He said, man, I've only got one shot to do this thing. And I gave it all for the adversary, and now I'm going to give it all for Jesus. Paul's scheme of his ministry was the gospel. Here's number three. The success of Paul's ministry was his obedience. The success of Paul's ministry was obedience. I worded it like this for a reason. Because one of the gravest dangers that you and I can ever encounter in our life is the trap of comparison. You can look at what I do and I can look at what you do and we could walk away at the end of the day feeling like we've done nothing, we've accomplished nothing, we've not really done anything with our life. The problem is God has not called you to do what he's called me to do. I couldn't do what Donetta does. Bless her heart. I don't know how you even keep all of that straight. But she has grace for her race. I have grace for my race. You have grace for your race. And at the end of the day, our, our success isn't how many or how big or how long. Our success, when we stand before Jesus like Paul is, simply, were we obedient? <laughs> Were we obedient? All of us want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, winding up with this, Paul was at Rome. He was on house arrest. People were coming. They were hearing him. They were listening to him. God was drawing a crowd. He got loosed um, and found himself back in prison for a short time. And he uttered a couple of these letters. And I want you, this is not on the screen, but they may can pull it on there real quick. It's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5 through 8. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5 through 8. And I want you to, to see Paul's heart and his mindset, knowing fully that he's about to get his head taken off. Paul's writing to Timothy which was his spiritual son. It was his son in the Lord. Timothy was a pastor. Here's what Paul said. He says, but you, be watchful in all things. Endure affliction. Do the work of an evangelist. Now hold on. He was a pastor of the church of Ephesus, but he told him to do the work of an evangelist because part of pastoral ministry has to be outreach. So listen, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Look at what Paul says. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race I have kept the faith. Then notice what he said here. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not just to me only, but also, but to all who have loved his appearing. Now, 
The success of Paul's ministry was obedience. Now, if you read the rest of 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is writing to them, and he's sending letters to Crete, and he says, uh, I want you to come to me before winter, bring a cloak that I had left in this other place. He's giving them all of these instructions, and basically, Paul, knowing that he's getting ready to leave, is leaving things in order. Bring my parchments, bring my scroll, I'm going to leave a legacy, I know that my time is up. Here's the thing. All of us live our lives with the intention of living the full life that we can. But how many of us live with the understanding of leaving such a legacy that when we die, there's not a drop left in our spiritual cup? Poured it out. I don't have anything else to give. When I die, I don't want to die because of some other. I want to die because I'm done. I'm done. I don't have anything else to give. I'm a drink offering. I've been poured out. I have fought the good fight. I have ran the race. I have kept the faith. Then Paul looks past his life. Through his death, talked about this last week, he said, there lays up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord shall give to me, the righteous judge, on that day. And not just to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Started off with this thought, and I'm closing. I said, it's not, a, not really a good bestseller to say, hey, if you follow Jesus, you might die. Am I right about it? Most books you find in the Christian help section say follow Jesus and your life will get better. Now it will get better. Because a day with Jesus is better than a day with the devil. But what we fail to realize is is that giving our lives to Christ is not us giving our life to Christ so we can keep our life. But giving our life to Christ is exchanging our life. See, it's hard for us to grasp That this was the will of God for Paul. There's a special place in heaven. Read the book of Revelation where martyrs go. That must mean that God had prepared a place. Under the throne of God, the Bible says, the blood of the martyrs cry out. There's going to be some activity in the tribulation period. Don't have time to talk about that, but it's really awesome. But here's what I want to say. Paul's final destination was Rome. He lived his life on purpose. Now, in here, you close your Bible, I'm seriously done. Paul was not the only figure in the book of Acts, obviously. But we do see that God chose to highlight Paul's ministry throughout the book of Acts. And I think that's for a reason. Because Paul would later go on to write so many other epistles and letters to the church about the church, correcting doctrine, correcting things, that God wanted to give us a backdrop of Paul's life. Now, if I can take anything from Paul's life, if I can take anything from the book of Acts and, and sew this up tonight in a uh, fire starter type fashion, I would say a couple of things. First of all, first of all, number one, do you know what you've been created for? 
Well, if you don't know, I think I'd start asking. Because whatever God's created you for, if, you've, if, God, if God has you being a bus driver, be the best bus driver you can be. you got a captive audience of kids for an hour and a half every morning, hour and a half every evening. Be the best one you can be. He's called you to be a teacher. If he's called you to be a doctor, if he's called you to be a truck driver, if he's called you to be a housewife, if he's called you to be a soccer mom, whatever it might be, be the best that you can be. I would ask you, number one, do you know what your purpose is? The second thing I would ask you is this. Are you living with that purpose in mind? Because so many, so many times, because we're carnal, flesh, everybody say flesh. You know, you do this right here. It talks to you. You know what it says? That hurts. The light shining in your eyes, what does it say? That's bright. If you have a pain, if you have an issue, if you get hungry, if you get thirsty, if you get sleepy, we get so caught up in the carnal realm that oftentimes what happens is we forget about what God has called us to do and how he's called us to live, and we start just doing our own thing, running our own race. But Paul, Paul said, I've run the race that God set out before me. And I've finished it. And I've kept the faith. The third thing I would tell you is this. Paul had a bad start. Paul started out in life doing the wrong thing. Running in the wrong direction. God changed his life. God gave him a purpose. God helped him. And God used him greatly. And the final thing I would tell you is this. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. It's how you finish. 